you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans 1. Today will be the last day that we're in Romans 1. On Friday, we will start the Bold Grace Summit, which will be over other subjects in the book of Romans. I'm very excited about the speakers that we have coming. Um, very sincere and dear brothers in Christ who are looking forward to the opportunity to encourage us. And I want to just let you know real quick, if you haven't registered, today is the last day we're taking registration. Uh, registration is not signing up on the sheet out there. That's if you want people to stay at your house from out of town. So we might be pawning some people off of it if you thought that was uh, regist- registering it. You end up with strangers on your door saying, thank you very much. That's going to be a real good exercise in flexibility and hospitality and patience for you. That's good. Hey, the Lord does, does those kind of things. But what we need you to do if, you, if you're interested is get on the website, gbcportage.com. The very first thing when it pops up, you should have a button right there to register for the conference. If you want to do that, mainly Saturday is what we need to know about your attendance because there's a, uh, a lunch that we're going to do and also uh, providing dinner that night. So we need an accurate head count. But we hope that you'll make the time to come and at least be part of it if you can't be part of all of it. Uh, it's very beneficial and, and uh, I think it's going to be very encouraging. The wrath of God is not a good thing. God's wrath is His hot displeasure against all sin and unrighteousness. And we are all very much aware of what invites God's wrath in our life. Because any time that we are doing something to try to cover it up, put it in the dark, lie to get our way out of it, we are actually suppressing the truth. Have you ever noticed that with young children... There are many things that can really make you upset as a parent. But when they lie, there's something about lying that just sets your mind on fire. And they will go to the hilt, try to not get caught. What if they just would have fessed up and they could have dealt with it at that moment? It would have been a much easier option for them. There's something about suppressing truth that is not just damaging with God's wrath invited on us, but it creates in us a characteristic of prevalent lying. I don't know how else to say that. Habitual sinning. In other words, for some moment we've believed that sin is the answer to our already terrible problem. This is, a, this is the great mindset that Satan has sowed amongst the world. When we talk about the fact that Satan is the one who orchestrates this world system. It talks about the world. We're actually talking about how he has threaded together the ideas that are transmitted in our culture. How many people have seen the news lately? How many people have seen something positive in the news lately? It's all destruction, death, pride, hate. These poor people in Hong Kong, what in the world's going on? All over the world, people are searching for answers. All over the world, for people asking for their rights to be respected and their liberty to be upheld, there's something truthful about that. And when somebody comes against it, they recognize a national suppression of truth. I promise you this, it's no different in everyday life, a suppression of truth. So what have we seen so far? Let's just hit on some highlights of what we've seen so far. One of the first things we've seen is that it is the suppression of truth that unveils God's wrath. God hates sin. Let's not mince words. There are some things that God hates. He hates sin. It is no part of Him. It is completely against everything that He stands for. It is uniquely uncharacteristic of the makeup of His person. And He hates it. Why? Because it is the only thing that separates the creation from the Creator. Therefore, this hate is warranted. Very much expected. And here's the thing. As people who have been designed in His image and His likeness, we should be hating sin as well. Sometimes I'm ashamed at how human beings deal with sin. Because all we do is we get caught up in the morality of it. And we fail to look at the heart. We want to change the behavior but we never want to get to the inner problem that's going on. We will prune branches all day long, but we will never put poison to the root system. And that is a problem. Because we are trying to put one hand in a pot of gold, 
put our other hand in the side of Christ and say that's okay. Not. He's not pleased. So if that's the case, what happens to society when they want to teeter on this destructible fence? Well, they start to deny God. They know He's there, but they deny Him. In fact, if you would look real quick, real quick, verse 20 of Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Here's the reason, so that they are without excuse. He has made Himself known. No one can raise a hand and plead ignorance. It doesn't happen. So knowing that He's there and denying His existence, well, I'm not going to consider that there is something greater than me, a sovereign of which I should bow down to. And by thrusting Him aside, we now become our own kings. We now become our own queens. We're the ruler of our lives. We are the captains of our souls. Anybody ever memorize that that poem in high school? What was it? Invictus, is that what it's called? What sick paganism. What sick humanism that is. To think that somehow our rights are chief. You never saw Jesus claim this ever. So what does it say? Claiming to be wise, they became, what's the word? You guys remember? fools and that's exactly what we see when we talk about a death parade when we talk about people that are bent on championing destruction and degradation and dishonor throughout our entire culture what we are seeing is fools it's a parade of fools notice that the first thing that takes place verse 23 25 is idolatry and why is that because what could be known about god what could be had about god what is easily accessible of god is given up it's exchanged i think i would rather have something else and so it's traded off why because i want something that's not going to hold me as accountable i want something that's going to be a little bit more palatable i want something that is not going to call upon me to examine myself and admit my helplessness and my guilt before a holy god for some reason, humility is, is, is missing in Christianity. Have you noticed this? It doesn't take long for some guy to be a celebrity preacher, write a lot of books, end up on TV, and the next thing you know, you find something crazy's happened to him, only for move on to the next person. We're all so consumed with what these personalities have to say, we stop being consumed with the personality that matters. That's only Jesus Christ. So when that takes place and this exchange is made, God allows people to follow their hearts into the sin. And once you pass the milepost of idolatry, you end up into sexual immorality. Let me define it again for you. Sexual abuse, from a biblical standpoint, is anything that is done outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman with mutual agreement between those two parties as one flesh anything i don't care what it is and we have got to start being honest about this pornography problem going on throughout the church we have to i've actually got material to go through with anybody that would be willing to come to talk about the problem of idolizing sex that we have and that is ruining our minds and our families and our marriages and our homes and saturating it with all kinds of ungodliness. I actually have information. My problem is is that if I offered a class like that, I'm afraid no one would come. You know why? No one wants to admit it, number one. But when your spouse asks you, honey, where are you going? You don't want them to know, do you? And telling them is the best thing you can do. Why? Because you need accountability in your life. Because you need somebody that will hold you up. I'll tell you this, God's not surprised by sins like that, but He's not pleased by sins like that. And it wouldn't be so shameful, except that in Jesus Christ, He's offered us so much better. So much better. There's no reason why we should spend tons of money at Goodwill when we've been given unlimited gift cards at Macy's. Does that communicate with some of you? Just want to make sure. (laughs) Whatever way you get it, I'll go there, okay? I don't care. But after that, we fall into sexual immorality. Of one evidence that we find is homosexuality, and and we have that issue running rampant. And let me say this one more time, because I've actually had some really good dialogue and, and conversation with you. 
If our goal is to change the behavior of the world, we've lost. That's how churches die. Because you either mount up this legalistic crusade that is going to fail, or you capitulate and you invite impurity into your body and it begins, like leaven, to saturate everything and spoil it. So how do you deal with it? You give them the gospel. That's the problem. People don't need to be told, act better, do right, straighten up. We all need to do that. What they need to be told is, because of your inability to save yourself, you need Jesus Christ. That's where we're at. That should be the call of the church. When we pass that milepost of sexual immorality and deviancy, where do we end up? Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now, where do you find that? You find that in verse 18. You find that in verse 21. You find that in verse 23. So just as people do not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And why would they do that? Remember this. This is so important. Don't miss it. Promoting sin and calling for it to be acceptable. That it's right. That there's nothing wrong with it. Everybody just needs to get on the bandwagon and do it because we all do it. It's an authority problem. It is trying to establish an authority that usurps the authority that God has given in His Word. Well, I don't believe the Bible's true. Well, that's fine. That don't mean it's not true. You may believe it, great, but what are you saying? I'm my own authority. Cool. Then live apart from the Bible and let's see how that's going for you. It's not going to be going well. Why? No peace, no assurance, no joy, no true understanding of love. None. You just won't find it anywhere. The world doesn't offer it. The world chews us up and spits us out. Jesus Christ keeps us secure forever. So notice, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over. If you don't want to stick with Him, cool, He'll let you do what you want to do. To a depraved mind. And what's interesting about this word depraved, in in Greek it's the word adakimos. It means the idea of disqualified mind. It's the idea of having a um, disapproved mind mind. In other words, your very thinking process of the reasons and motives is why you do what you do and the choices that you make become worthless. There is no value in your value system is what happens. It says here, to do those things which are not proper. And I think it's interesting because when you say to do things that are not proper, there's obviously an understood standard of what is proper. Yes? Now, moms, be honest, okay, for just a second. When your child suddenly belches at the dinner table, something about that fires you up, doesn't it? Because you know it's not what? It's not proper. We don't do that. We're not Italian. I don't know. (laughs) From what I've heard, for Italians, it's a compliment. But here, by and large, it's wrong. Unless your husband's trying to compete with them. We don't do that at our house. Just letting you know. I know you want to read into that. You're looking for dirt on me. It's okay. But it's not proper. There's something that is out of place of that type of behavior with the setting that we are in and the authority that has been established. Yes, do we see that? Notice, because God has established an authority and because of where we live and the human interactions that we have, there is something that we can just look at it and go, That doesn't fit. It's out of place. It's wrong. It is the square peg in the round hole type of thing. It says here, verse 29, being filled, and that means full, being filled with all unrighteousness, which is interesting because that is a derivative word in the Greek from the adakimos, the idea of a depraved mind or a worthless mind, being filled with all kinds of disapproval worthlessness, disqualification, exercising behavior that is null and void at all times. How about this next part here? Wickedness. How can I express evil-mindedness in social situations? That's what wickedness means here. The next one, greed. We know that one, right? Lust for more. I got to have more. I got to have more. Some people are just a black hole that will never be filled. It is an evidence beyond the milepost of sexual immorality of complete 
cultural bankruptcy. How do you know that your culture is bankrupt? Because people just keep wanting more. A taking culture ruins itself. How about this? Just the word evil. That person's evil. Mean-spiritedness and viciousness is what this Greek word means. How about the next one? Full of envy. Covetousness. Does everybody start to see some semblance between this and the law of God given to the Israelites? Yes? Okay, notice. Murder. Thou shalt not kill. Right? Murder. Yet we have no problem mowing people down, do we not? What happened in Philadelphia? Did everybody see this? Six cops shot. The guy already had tons of priors and was actually already barred from owning a gun. So there's the solution. Let's outlaw guns. Things will get better. Somebody think for a moment. Stop being stupid. Is that really how it's going to work? No, because that's what? Dealing with the branches? Not the heart. Yeah, we already got a law against murder. That's not holding up too well. Notice it wants to deal with the symptoms and not the heart. And the sooner our government recognizes that Jesus Christ is who deals with the heart, not them, we will really start to get somewhere as a society. Isn't it interesting, Jesus' words? I tell you, whoever hates his brother has already killed him. It says a lot about our interpersonal relationships right now, doesn't it? Think about how we let anger and emotions take our train off the tracks. Remember, there's no power in feelings. None. None that's worth moving forward with. There's our problem. Not just murder, but strife. Having contention with one another. One another. Any of you know any brothers and sisters you got to walk on eggshells around? I say stomp it. Just get done with it. Say, why are you so sensitive? Let's go talk. We obviously need to spend some time in prayer together. You know what? A little bit of loving compassion towards somebody who you always have to be around might actually break down that hard heart. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? That's actually what the church is supposed to be. I love it. How about the next one? Deceit. Taking advantage of other people. Notice it's all personal. It's all about me. Malice. And it's interesting, this word malice, when I looked it up in the lexicon, it means a character defect leading to hurting others. A character defect. Notice, it's not just rooted in your utter sinfulness and depravity that we all have when we're born. No, it's actually considered in social circles that your character is defective. Does everybody see that by labeling it a character defect, that we're still going back to the idea of a general accepted standard of norms of how society should work? Does everybody see this? So notice, it's all a rebellion against an authority. We're not worried about whether it's Democrat versus Republican, whether you like the president or not, whether it's cops versus whoever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a general understanding of God's ethics and saying, no, I would rather follow my heart and let my heart lead into a place where I will actually hurt other people without regard in fact we would say that that person is callous we would say that they have been singed in their conscience without clear thinking how about the next one they are gossips oh the rumor mill we love that one right i mean our local stores have little racks where they put the gossip mill up right so you can see what's going on well i saw this on tmz well set your tv on fire stop that That's silly. If you're going to have a TV, use it responsibly. Don't be feeding trash into your home. Verse 30, slanderers speaking ill of someone in such a way as to diminish or destroy their reputation. There's a lot of things in this life you can get back. Reputation, it's difficult. In fact, used to, people would fight, and they might even fight dirty but they would at least leave your reputation alone. Used to. Now everything counts. Because all I care about is getting my way, not how this affects you later. How about the next one? 
haters of God. I'm going to find things that will purposely be despicable in his sight and make sure that I am exercising those things regularly in my life. See, that's what's interesting about that. It would be different if you were saying, well, there is no God, but that's not the case, is it? It's God is there and I'm going to do things because I hate him. Does everybody see that? It is not atheism, it's anti-theism. That's important to understand that that's a true thing. Insolent. Does anybody know what the word insolent means? No. (laughs) Nope. Nope. That's the fact that you're needing insulin. Good grief. There's always one, isn't there? It's the fact that you are, what is it? Deliberately disobedient. That would be a good way to look at it. Uh, What I found here was violently insulting. Or insulting someone to the point of shameful means is what it is. So if you want to use the word insulin on somebody, that might be good. And they say, what in the world does that mean? Then you can tell them it's found in Romans 1. Then you share the gospel with them, let them know what sinners they are, and they need Jesus. Hopefully they'll get saved. It'll be good. <laughs> also, arrogant and boastful. Or let's put this in, in, in maybe terms we can understand better. Prideful, self-centeredness. Or it's the greatest study of our time. It's called meology. Meology. The thinking of me, the study of me, and what I want. I tell you what, and my wife is a good woman, so she might not on the outside want to agree with this, but it's true. But when our son says, I think I want, we go, why is that? Nobody had to teach him that one. Three years old, he was already wanting to do this, what I want. What I want, what I want, what I want. Now, imagine everyone 20 years on in an entire culture of people who are constantly doing this. It's not hard to imagine, is it? Why is that? Because we live there. Because that's where we are. Does everybody see why the church of Jesus Christ is to have this incredible holiness? Remember, what the word holy means is set apart. We are to have set-apartness. In fact, if you wanted to ask yourself, what does it look like to live the Christ life? You would simply look at the antithesis of everything that's being listed here. Everything that is being listed here is antithetical to the righteousness of God. I want it all and I want it now. Freddie Mercury. That's where it came from. It's what he said. Next one, inventors of evil. In other words, I don't just need to be violent and vicious. I've got to be strategic about it. What are new ways that I can do the wrong thing that nobody's ever invented before? Those origins of now accepted and common extraordinary sins originally came back to at some point somebody did it differently to begin with. How do you know that? Well, if you go back to Genesis, uh, you find out, who was it in there? Good grief, now I've put myself in a hole. Um, give me a second. Lamech. Lamech is the first first person to introduce sexual immorality by plural marriage into history. Yes, right. And if you are a good Mormon who really believes what they truly believe, in fact, if I recall correctly, according to the Book of Mormon, it actually tells you that you cannot be accepted by God unless you marry more than one woman. That it's impossible. I mean, it's a works religion. What do we expect? So it's a checklist of what you've got to do for God to love you. So if you're a good Mormon, you will actually marry more than one woman. What does that tell you? We've got a bunch of bad Mormons running around. Why? Because of societal pressure. If you believe it, stick on it. Actually do it. But extraordinary sins happen somewhere. Turns out it happened back in Genesis. It's just one example. How about the next disobedient to parents i love it there's a little mm. it goes through everybody right there's an authority structure again notice it's a rebellion against an authority does everybody see this i won't hammer on it too much verse 31 without understanding in other words a lack of common consideration and an operation of continual foolishness Remember, we're talking about fools who deny God. 
who have been thrust into depravity because that's where their hearts want to go. Untrustworthy. So notice that. You, you, you cannot trust them whatsoever. They're promise breakers. Unloving. They have no regard for other people and there is no feeling. They are hard-hearted. Unmerciful. That's pretty plain, right? Uh, in fact, here's a definition I found. To turn one's back on someone, to refuse to hear a person's cries for help. Some of the things that are being shown on the internet now have gone as far as to people filming violent acts against other peoples and all they do is stand there and film. No one helps. They let people get beaten for one reason or another just so they can laugh at it and film it. This is the shocking things that people want to see today. Verse 32, and although they know, now watch this, they know, it's without a shadow of a doubt, every person knows, no one can claim ignorance. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Sin leads to what? Death. Physical death. Spiritual death. Doesn't matter. Separation is the idea here. Who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, notice that, they join in, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's legalize it. It's wrong. Let's legalize it. Because when you legalize it, you now install an authority. Notice, it's a scrape for authority and acceptance. You now install an authority that agrees with your depravity. And if it agrees with your depravity, then your sin becomes acceptable. Why is that? Well, the government said I could do it. Well, the place where I work said it's okay. All things may be lawful, but all things are not what? Expedient or profitable. There are some things that just aren't good, regardless of who told you it was okay. So here's a world that has forgotten about God. In fact, one interesting thing I read in a book Whenever this section is taught to indigenous tribes, there was one missionary from the field who said, when I got done with Romans 1, the biggest question amongst the tribesmen is, how did Paul know who we are? <laughs> if this was written a thousand years ago, or two, you know, 2,000 years ago, how did he know? And here's the amazing thing is, number one, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we understand that. But number two, because this is characteristic of every society. The sins that we dabble in are not unique. That means that God is not caught by surprise in any form or fashion by what society looks like. But let's be honest, it's easy to feel that it's out of control, isn't it? It's easy to sit there with your hands on your cheeks and go, has anything like this ever happened in history? The fact is it has. Now, this is all really negative, bad stuff, isn't it? Aren't you glad you came to church? Let's talk about happy stuff. Can we do that? Let's talk about happy stuff. We've got however long. <laughs> happy stuff. Go back to verses 16 and 17, and let's talk about how do you deal with a culture that is continually spiraling out of control, and what has God done to help you? Let's do that. Chapter 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, not your power, and certainly not my power. It is God's power. So the first thing we need to do is be accepting of the fact that God has power in the situation regarding the gospel. What do I need to be about? I need to be about the gospel. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinful people of which he grants eternal life by faith alone. I need to be about that message. Why? Because there's power there. I'm looking for power everywhere else. I'm failing to look to Christ for that power. Let's resolve today to stop looking other places and stop conjuring all these different things. Or maybe if I word it this way, they'll listen to me for a change. No, be about the gospel. Be about Christ crucified. Paul said, I claim to know nothing amongst you except Christ and Him crucified. Let that be your banner. So there's power in the gospel, but look at this. 
For in it the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Who is believing is what that means to the Jew first and also the Greek. If you are a believer in Christ, you have an incredible, untapped, well, full of power, ready to be unleashed by the sharing of the gospel. Satan does not care if we disciple as long as we don't evangelize. If he can get you to keep your nose in the Bible so long that you never apply it to open your mouth and share the light that God has given with the world, he has won. He will conquer churches one by one in that way. All we have to do is shut up. Sometimes we wonder why there's no power. I'll tell you why, because we're not giving a gospel. In fact, out of fear, we will result in any sort of advice that may seem applicable. But we won't give them the gospel. I pray that's not you. I pray that that is not you. I pray that is not the conviction of your heart. I want to help, but I don't want to give them the gospel. Please don't let that be you. Everything in the Bible preaches against that. And if that is the case, you have found yourself guilty of suppressing righteousness. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Notice that. It needs to be seen. People have got to see it. The gospel can be seen. The righteousness of God can be seen in the gospel from faith, your justification, to faith, your sanctification, your growing in your walk with Christ, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, shall live by by faith. In other words, it is a gospel-saturated daily living. Why would we not want to live that way? The only reason why we wouldn't is if we deemed that sin was more valuable than Christ. Are those odds we're willing to play? I would hope not. So notice, the great place that we play is the church in this culture that is just going downhill is the idea that we are light bearers of the gospel of Christ. And it needs to be made manifest. Not just in our lives to save us. We're saved, we're now in, everything's good, my ticket's punched, I'm on my way. Yes, that's very much true. But how you live matters. Jesus will make sure of it. And he has called us to exceedingly great things. That because we have denied the power of the gospel in transforming our lives to displaying righteousness, we wonder sometimes why our Christianity seems to have no oomph behind it. It has no oomph because we are not all about the gospel. Now, I don't know how to say that any plainer. Now, I want to show you something else interesting. God has given us four ways that he's going to help us out. We're going to hit these pretty quickly. Everybody ready? Put up your turning hand, your flipping hand. Your turning hand, everybody right here. Wiggle your fingers. Come on, everybody, participate. We don't need any sticks in the mud here. The gospel's too joyous for us to be sour. Here we go. Turn over to chapter 2. Chapter 2, look at verse 14 here. We've gone over some of these before, but I'm stirring up your mind by way of reminder. For when Gentiles, and the word Gentiles here means pagans, godless people. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively or by nature the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. In other words, there's an internal truth that motivates anyone, whether they believe in God or not, to uphold the certain standards, boundaries, ethics, and morals that they do. Guess what? God put it there. Look at verse 15. In that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. God has taken the time before any of us were born to personally etch within every single person his divine expectations and standards. Does that resonate with anyone? Oh, that's bad. Why is that bad? Talk to somebody who's a pagan. They don't know. They just know that it is. Well, it would be harming other people. But where did that come from? You dig and you dig and you dig, you find out that there is something internal that is testifying to the wrongness of sinful action. And notice what it says about this. It's written on their hearts, and here's the, here's the, here's the thing about it. Oh, here's what I love. I love this. 
the conscience. Uh-oh. Everybody like their conscience? Oh, I hope so. Their conscience bearing witness. Your conscience is going to testify against you at the judgment seat of Christ. Aren't you excited about that? Here's the thing. He will either be a prosecutor or he will be a great defense attorney. It's one way or another, depending on whether or not you listened and responded to the work of God written in your heart. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? You're like, that doesn't sound too good. My conscience is bad. Well, get right with God. That's what I got to tell you. Notice it says here, conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And when will this happen, Paul? On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Everything that we do in darkness will be fully exposed in light for all to see before him when we stand there. What will your conscience say there? Notice this. The law of God is written on hearts and the conscience of a person is testifying. This is one way how God is working in people. How about this? Turn back to John chapter 12. Gospel of John chapter 12. Anybody else excited? Just want to make sure. No. I believe that is referring for believers for the judgment seat of Christ and for unbelievers it could be the great white throne, yes. Everybody has it written on the hearts. It doesn't say whether it's Christian or non-Christian. I think this is something important because this has been a, a source of confusion that was brought up to me recently. The great white throne judgment of God is in Revelation 20 where Jesus Christ will judge every person who is dead, who is separated, who never believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior. He will judge them after the tribulation, after the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. Okay, The judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. And the judgment seat of Christ does not judge you on whether or not you're going to heaven. You already died. That matter is already settled on earth. That's the importance of settling the gospel. But the question is, with the gifts and the things that I gave you to be a faithful steward, how did you steward yourself as a Christian who had maximum revelation, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and God's help around you to throw you in the right direction? Did you obey him or did you not obey him? And for those that obeyed him, they are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They're going to be clothed with robes that not everybody will have. Some will receive crowns. Some will receive rights to sit in certain places, to have certain artifacts that have been given to them, specially designed by Christ himself. Well, some will be given a new name. Some will be publicly recognized by Christ unto the Father, almost like on graduation day when, you're, when your name is called. Look at, look at, look at Tom. <laughs> And how faithful Tom looked. Look, I'm saying good things about you because it's such good stuff. And, and, and the Lord actually is recognizing Tom and his faithfulness to the gospel before the Father saying, take note of him. He loved you to the end. That kind of thing. Not every Christian gets that. That is so important for us to understand. So the idea, if you end up at the great white throne judgment, it's because you were never saved, and that happens after the millennial reign of Christ. But when the church is raptured, and while the seven-year tribulation is going on, that's when the judgment seat of Christ takes place in heaven. Every one of us will give an account for what we have done in the body, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Maybe we should have a class on eternal rewards. Pete, I'm glad you brought that up. Starting September. <laughs> September 8th. Pete and Tom are teaching through a class on eternal rewards. I highly recommend that you take that class. It will be extremely informative of what's, what you should expect, what's going on. Good stuff. Yes? Where does what? I've already prepared a sermon. Well, let me go ahead and tell you. We have a baptism at 11.15. I totally believe that the Lord's going to hold off the weather for us to do this, okay? But maybe since everybody's here in my hearing, we'll schedule it a little bit later. Is that okay? Okay. When it says, depart from me, I never knew you, it's very interesting because that Greek word is for new is actually the word oida. And that word can also be used as to mean I'm not recognizing you or I'm not esteeming you in that moment. So it's not that someone is being thrown out and, and you're going to hell when you die kind of thing. That's not what it is. It's the idea of you are not receiving the recognition that you could have had had you been faithful. That's the idea. So does that help? Okay, so when you go back and read that, think through that. And I'm pretty sure, and, and don't, don't quote me on this right, but it's at some point in 1 Thessalonians 5, 
I want to say either 17 or 23, it talks about um, uh, esteeming, recognizing, knowing someone, and it purposely uses that word oida in that way. So that's a possibility of meaning that that word could have. I can't remember exactly, so, but I, I can get with you about it later and, and let you know. So, so the first way that God is working with us The first way that God is working with us is he's already etched the law on the heart. He's already given us the conscience to mm, 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 us in the right direction, okay? How about this? John 12, look at verses 32 and 33. This is Jesus. You know by the red letters, right? It says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, and don't let anybody ever downplay this verse because it's very plain what it says, will draw all men to myself and then so that there's nothing misconstrued john gives you a little commentary look what he says but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die when jesus christ was crucified on the cross something took place at that moment in his payment for the sins of the world to where immediately going into effect was a drawing of all people to him. So notice, the crucifixion of Christ automatically elicits this power that he has in calling sinners to come to him. So that's another way that he is working. Not only in the heart, but outside of the heart in drawing every single person. And here's the thing, all men, no one is exempt. This isn't a special class of people. This is every person. God is already working in some way to bring people to Christ. Now, can they resist this? Absolutely, they can resist this. But you can never chalk it up to the fact that God was doing nothing in the situation. How about this? We're familiar with this from Foundational Framework. Turn over to 16, John 16. Look at verse 7. John chapter 16, verse 7. Another way that God is getting involved to counteract pagan society. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, verse 7 here, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, and he, when he comes, will convict the world. There's his audience. Everyone. So not only is the law written on every single person's heart, not only is the death of Christ drawing all people, but the Holy Spirit's involvement in the world, and we know this has happened because Jesus has ascended to the Father. He's called on the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes to be amongst us here, and now He is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, because people don't believe. Righteousness, because He is the presence of righteousness. Don't miss this connection. He is the presence of righteousness on the earth today because Christ has ascended. Well, why does that matter? Because the righteous man will live by faith. What does that mean? It means that when you're trusting God for his word and you are living your life, handling daily situations in light of his word, he's saying, yes, God's word is paramount above all things. The Holy Spirit begins a conviction process on the people around you because of the righteousness evident in your life, a righteousness that can't just be mustered up by doing well, trying better, Whatever. It can't be done like that. It is a supernatural righteousness. It's the actual righteousness of the life of Christ being lived through you amongst other people. But also judgment. Why is it judgment? Because if you don't know him, you will be judged. That's the reason why. And our gospel message should not stray from that. Sin, righteousness, judgment. Those are the three main places where the Holy Spirit is working. That's where we have to be talking to people. Which leads me to my next one. Romans 10. Romans 10. And Mitch, I gave you some of the verses that were a little short-sighted here. I want to give you, uh, let's start in verse uh, 13. I'm surprised at the scholarly debate that happens about the difference between salvation and something else in the book of Romans. Um, It's extremely disheartening because everything I read by other people says, well, salvation is always just go to heaven when you die. Just go to heaven when you die. I want to show you that even Paul notes that that can't be possible. And here's the reason why. If you look at verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ha, see, you have to call on him in order to be saved. Let me ask you a question. Is calling on Jesus a work? 
Is it something you physically have to do? Yeah, it is. It's a work. So what are we saying? You're saved by works? Well, that would completely go against everything about the gospel, and faith alone ends up not being faith alone. It's faith plus call, which also in some of the reading I've done lately also includes repentance, also includes the evidence of good works, also includes coming into his presence, also includes drawing near to him. It's just insane how many people want to line up the dominoes of what has to fall in order for Jesus to say, you're okay and you can come in. It's insane. It's all about other people's work. Now watch what happens here. We're talking about calling on the Lord. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not what? Stop for a second. Does everybody see that calling on the Lord is actually something beyond belief? Everybody see that? You have to believe first and then you can call on him. Or let me say it this way. The relationship needs to be established in order for you to take advantage of it and invite his interaction to be specially done in your situation. Does everybody see that? So notice, what we're talking about here is when you find yourself in a difficult situation, in a dire situation, in a destitute and hopeless situation, we are to call out to the Lord to be saved, rescued, delivered from this situation. We are inviting Him to have His righteous hand involved in our circumstances to start cleaning house so that we can get out of it. We are calling on His involvement. But if you have not believed, you cannot call upon him. Does everybody see that? Now watch how it goes. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And notice he traces it back. And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't mean just me and Pastor Steve. That means y'all and all y'all. I noticed you tried to take a page out of my playbook. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> hey, people steal from great people, right? So that's, yeah, meology right here. So <laughs> seriously, I'm just messing. But here's the idea. Haven't all of us been commissioned to share the gospel? Right. So now watch this. And how will they hear without a preacher? Verse 15. And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Now stop for a second. Everybody run the process backwards and see. Here's what happens. Here's how people get saved. Number one, they're sent. Everybody see this? Who is sent? Someone to preach. Someone to tell the good news. When they tell the good news, people hear. When people hear, they believe. When they believe, they are now in a relationship with God of where they can call out to Him and get Him intimately involved in their life. Now, skip down to verse 17 and look what it says. If anything encapsulates this as perfectly as it could be, it's this verse. So, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. People need to hear so that they can respond in belief. Everybody see that? But the content of the message is the message of Christ. It is the dispensing from the church, the message of Christ, so that when people hear it, they can now exercise their faith. And when they believe, they are declared righteous in His sight. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Four ways that God is helping us. The society is in the trash heap. It's a dumpster fire right now, if we've ever seen one. So how do we do it? We muster up campaigns, we raise funds, we try to implement positive programs for the children. No! The church cannot afford to be a social convention that keeps wasting time, energy, and money. Ever! The only way to solve these problems is to get in line with where God is already working and be a bearer of the gospel. The law is already written on people's hearts. Consciences are already holding people accountable and testifying to these facts. And these consciences are so valuable for this purpose that they will be called upon at the judgment seat of Christ. That sounds pretty important to me. When Jesus died on the cross, He didn't just pay for sin. He began to start a drawing process of every single person on the face of the earth. 
He then asked of the Father. The Father sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is right now at this moment actively convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Why? So that they would believe in the gospel. And he has given the means of people believing by hearing the gospel message about Jesus Christ so that they will have faith. And that message is only about Christ and him crucified. So let me ask you a question, church. How are they going to hear if we don't preach. I'm going to say this, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody, I promise you. If this strikes a chord with you, it's not malicious or intending, intending to do that. Lay down your good intentions. Lay them down. Because if these good intentions have nothing to do with Christ being the central subject of the conversations that we should be having, with the lost people around us. By very definition, they're not good at all. They're evil. They are a means of subterfuge. They are a distraction. Look over here while I do something over here. That's a philosophy of Satan. Because he will do whatever it takes to keep people from hearing the gospel. We wonder sometimes why evangelism is so cold across churches. I think the reason is, is because at this point in history, Satan is winning. Let's resolve as a local body of believers here, which represent Christ to this community, we will not fall into that trap. That will not be us. Now, I didn't get any amen, so I'm concerned about that. (laughs) But I ask that to be the conviction, the resolve of your heart. I'm not going to be one of these people that is just silent, keeping my place, walking in step with everybody else like we should be. You know, can't talk about politics and religion at the dinner table. I tell you, why not? You really want to get some people going and have some good conversation, bring that up. It's good stuff. Let's make our purpose to work alongside where God is already working with the message of Christ. Pray. Father, thank you for our time together and just praying, Lord, for our recognition of maybe areas where we do see you working, where we do see consciences convicting the holy spirit convicting the message of christ drawing people father we need to be preaching we need to be telling people faith comes through hearing and hearing the word about christ that is our message that is our focus it is nothing else all that we have needs to be channeled into exalting jesus the savior Father, show us where we are out of line with these things. Make us prayerful for our culture. Give us open doors of opportunity. Rid us of all fear. We know that fear is not from you. And fill us, Lord, with what we need to say at any given moment. Encourage us to be willing vessels with the greatest news ever told. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, please.